What's up, guys? We are talking about the resurrection of Christ Jesus. This is the last coffee house, and I read an article. You know, it's that time of year. We've got got Easter coming up. Or I tend to enjoy a lovely Cadbury egg around this time of year. I don't do many Easter hunts, being an adult, but I'll do something special, despite the fact that I do not believe in any kind of a zombie Jew resurrection. However, that's pretty much the central tenet, a very important part of Christianity. So, I read an article. It's called 10 Reasons We Know Christ Rose from the Dead. One thing I really want to do is kind of establish context here. Because we, as Westerners, assuming those listening are Westerners, if you're not, then you might not understand this, but we, as Westerners, are kind of just ensconced, consumed, inundated, whatever other word makes sense. We are surrounded by Christianity in general. It's something that by every... As far as crazy concepts go, Christianity is one of those things that is certainly legitimized by numbers in the Western world, so it's difficult to really take yourself out of the context to really evaluate an idea like this, like somebody rose from the dead. That would generally be a medical question, and it's certainly not an impossible thing medically, I'm sure, but I mean, they just I just saw an article recently about <laughs> doctors who had brought some pigs back from the dead. I'm not sure what their personality were relative to their pre-death personalities, uh, but it's certainly not medically impossible. But I just want to kind of set the stage here. So if somebody came up to you in the street and said, I know this dude who came back from the dead, and you said, oh, well, who are you? And he said, well, no, I know a guy, he came back from the dead. So you met a guy who came back from the dead, he told you this. Well, no, I mean, I, I heard about it from some other people. Okay, well, how'd you know these people? Were they were they friends of yours? Is there, is there some reason to believe? Because that's pretty significant claims. Like, well, no, I didn't, I mean, they weren't friends. We didn't really, I mean, acquaintance, well, not really acquaintance. We we kind of never met. I never talked to any of them. I, I read it in a, I read it in a book is actually what happened. Oh, okay, so you read it in a book that some guy came back from the dead. Yeah, it was, it was in a book. Okay, so was this, I mean, is this well sourced? <laughs> Are there, what kind of, what kind of sources do they use? Do they, I mean, is it like a bunch of eyewitnesses that talk about this? And how many eyewitnesses? Because that's a pretty significant claim. Well, I mean, no, it's not written by any eyewitnesses. Uh, but, I mean, a few, like a hundred years after they were written, uh, it was, it was affixed with some names that that people sometimes say are eyewitnesses. Dude, you're losing me here. How long ago was this written? It was like 2,000 years ago. I mean, any kind of a concept of evidentiary standards to determine whether something happened. And there's no way on earth you would accept that explanation from some, from some random guy who comes up to the street. And you get to talk to this guy directly. So, this particular person, the writer of this article, is saying that not just 10 reasons we can think or 10 reasons that we can, based on uh, statistical analysis or probability, we can determine that it's more likely than not that Christ rose from the dead. But this one is saying 10 reasons we know Christ rose from the dead. That's craziness. It starts out, the article starts out, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, famous on YouTube, speaks of psychological and symbolic ways. He appreciates the resurrection as a great freeing principle, but he says the question of the actual rising of Jesus from the dead is murky and complicated. What a punt that is, Jordan Peterson. That's absolute nonsense. Of course it's not murky and complicated. There is nowhere near 0.0001% of the required evidence for establishing something as ridiculous as this. It's not even close. It's not murky and complicated. It's nonsense. The particular writer of this article says he's wrong as well, buddy. 
the writer goes the other direction. The question is simple, was there a point in history in which Jesus Christ was dead and then a point in which he was alive again? Question mark. On that question, the evidence is very strong. Very strong, the writer says. Yes, Jesus literally rose from the dead. I can't even fathom that an adult human being is willing to levy these propositions in these ways. I can't believe it. I can't believe how dishonest somebody has to be to try make representations like this. Children could be reading this and saying that, oh, well, it's, it's very strong. I guess my evidentiary standards are just, uh, there's a thing that suggests that maybe an incredibly unlikely event happened from 2,000 years ago years ago in a bunch of papers I can't verify and have no sources and it's not even from eyewitnesses who are saying these things. So therefore I can accept that. That's sufficient evidence. Oh my god, so let's see what these 10 are because maybe, maybe I'm just completely wrong and these are so well reasoned and argued. The evidence is so strong that I should just turn into a Christian right here and now. Just in time for Easter, I'll, I'll be reborn. <laughs> as a Christian. Holy mother. So the argument from Christ's weakness. This is the argument. Number one, argument from Christ's weakness. Christ is portrayed as weak in the Gospels, therefore resurrection. What on earth are you talking about? So the argument here is that because he was portrayed as weak, this isn't something that you would do, like as your, your protagonist isn't going to be weak, so therefore the resurrection must have happened. How much of an incredibly gigantic chasm-wide jump is this from He's portrayed in the narrative as weak, therefore he must have existed and done all these things and resurrected and be God. Holy mother. So, number one, that doesn't make any sense. There's no way that you can jump from character portrayed in narrative as weak to they must have existed and and therefore there's a resurrection. Obviously, this person is using him as part of one of ten reasons. Uh, this is a shockingly weak reason. But, number two, uh, he's not weak. He's not weak. He has superpowers. Everybody loves him. He's a except for the Pharisees and the Jews, which is specifically for a certain purpose. And he conquers death and he's God. <laughs> that's, if that's weak, I mean, it'd be one thing if it's like a, a homeless person who just gets, <laughs> gets his ass kicked repeatedly and thrown in jail and that's the end of his story, never accomplishes anything. This is somebody who goes and brings people back from the dead, engages in miracles, and is literally God. Uh, I mean, obviously, depending on the... There are all sorts of Christologies that you get from the different Gospels, so you can't necessarily say that each of the Gospels think that Jesus is God, or when he became divine. Some think there's a... Who's at his baptism, some at his birth, some that he always was. Looking at you, John. So it's, it's a murky on that front. But Jesus is portrayed as the heroic protagonist who has to suffer to save people from their sins. That's not weakness. Oh my gosh, it's the whole point. And just along those lines, the story is about, the narrative is specifically about taking the prophetic sayings, the allegedly prophetic sayings in the Old Testament from the Psalms and Isaiah and, and others, and using those and saying that, okay, those were the things that the Messiah was supposed to be. That's for, Jews don't buy it. They say that, no, he's supposed to be a conquering hero. But for Christians, they took those things, said they're prophetic, and we'll go into those in detail, and said they're prophetic, and therefore he's supposed to be weak. That's the point. He's supposed to suffer. He's supposed to be crucified. He's supposed to be the, the sacrificial lamb who goes to the slaughter of, on behalf of the human beings. That's the point. So I've even got a, a list here. So the Hebrew Bible specifically prophesied that he's supposed to conquer death. In the Psalms, it talks about 
about him being humbled, him being the perfect sacrifice, him being the sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, that his parables will fall on deaf ears, specifically the, I mean, it gets a little dicey whether the Jews or Gentiles are accepting his, his preachings, but specifically Jews are the ones who reject him, and that's theological, that's the whole point. The Jews choose the wrong one, like when they're talking about Jesus Barabbas, uh, when they're choosing which one, the murderer or let Jesus go. <laughs> Of course, the, the other name in the earliest manuscripts is Jesus Barabbas when he's on trial. There's Jesus of Nazareth or, or Jesus ben Yosef or whatever. And Jesus Barabbas is on the other side, Jesus son of the father. So this gets, this is really complicated. It's not really complicated, but it gets a lot of details. But anyway, so they're supposed to say the whole argument is that the Jews picked the wrong sacrifice. They picked the wrong Jesus. And that's why, and Jesus goes off to the slaughter. Jesus Barabbas is let go. Um, and it's the whole idea of the two lambs. But the whole point is parables are supposed to fall on deaf ears and Isaiah talks about the Messiah being despised and rejected. Other prophecies say he'll be betrayed for silver, he'll be the Passover lamb, his blood will be spilled for atonement, he'll have to be subject to death so he can be resurrected, he'll be forsaken, he'll be scorned, he'd suffer from thirst, <laughs> that one's a little minor <laughs> related to the other ones. <laughs> That one's pretty minor, but <laughs> uh, everyone will abandon the Messiah and that he will conquer death, meaning he has to die. So he'll have to he'll have to die to be able to conquer the death. So the whole point, that's the whole point. It's all structured around that. So that doesn't help in any way to show that there was a, a historical resurrection just because it's not an action movie. <laughs> He's, he's like John McClane shooting up all his enemies. Doesn't mean that he's weak. He specifically wins and he's specifically structured narratively based on the prophecies to be this particular person. So it's an absolute nonsense argument to make this argument that he's portrayed as weak. Therefore, they wouldn't portray him as weak. No, they specifically would. And that's the whole point. Number two is the argument from the apostles weakness. So the argument is that the apostles are weak. So therefore, they wouldn't be portrayed as weak if they were just making this stuff up. So therefore, it must have happened. So specifically, as I talked about before, a lot of that stuff still applies because the apostles were specifically supposed to be rejecting of Jesus. They're supposed to falter. They're supposed to fail. He's supposed to be forsaken. He's supposed to be abandoned so that he, his glorification and having been crucified and resurrected is all the more amazing. It's part of prophecy that he would be abandoned and it's specifically a motif that the the apostles are idiots. That's that's a motif, narrative motif that's used. A lot of it actually comes from Homer too. If you read, what is it, the Homeric epics and the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is the, is Mark in priority is, is the scholarly term that Mark is the kind of the central fulcrum from which the other ones turn because they use large tracts of Mark and they modify Mark, that's Matthew and Luke, uh, use a bunch of Mark in their Gospels. So the point is, that this is a motif that they're not very bright, that they screw up and all that, all the more for the glorification of the protagonist. But this motif goes throughout and it's the point. It's not that, oh my gosh, they must have really been idiots and <laughs> and portrayed as such because they really were idiots. It's They needed to be idiots to fulfill the prophecies that were specifically talked about, especially in Matthew, and to follow this narrative motif that comes from Homeric epics and comes from other aspects of, of the writings. So this, it's the point, it's the point that they are weak in the narrative. 
Number three, the transformation of Saul. So Paul, the argument Paul went from the persecutor to a Christian. Okay, well, a guy said that 2,000 years ago that he used to persecute Christians. Now he turned into a Christian, therefore it must be true. No, of course not. That's absolutely ridiculous. So Paul is the earliest writer that, you know, if Jesus actually did exist and actually did get crucified, Paul is the earliest writer. So he's the one that we can look to the most for answers related to any of this stuff. But at least three of the books in the New Testament are pseudonymous. Scholars are virtually certain on this fact. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. And other ones, there are several others that are maybe, maybe not pseudonymous. And pseudonymous means that it was written under Paul's name, but it was written by somebody else. So they could give it authority. I can't go into the details on this, but they know this because of the writing style, specifically how the Greek is written, how long the sentences are, the word choice, etc., etc., etc. And not only that, but the theology that's expressed in those. So, so a lot of evidence that shows those three at least are pseudonymous, but other ones are likely pseudonymous as well. But there are a handful of ones that, that are authentic Pauline writings. So based on that, Paul is not even a witness to any of this stuff. <laughs> He didn't witness the resurrection and therefore, as a result, turn into a Christian. He said he had a personal revelation of Jesus. So Jesus appeared to him. He didn't witness Jesus getting killed or coming back from the dead. He just had a revelation of Jesus, which is the same kind of thing that people have all the time now. They they say that they have. That they have a personal revelation of Jesus and that's the, that's the reason they believe. But whatever the case, this is the argument is that Paul was a tra transformed from a person of Christians to a Christian himself and therefore this supports the idea that there was an actual resurrection. Paul was not there for the crucifixion of Jesus. Paul was not there to be privy to Jesus coming back from the dead. He at best had a revelation of Jesus coming to him later in some manner that's barely described. And most importantly, it's a guy saying this 2,000 years ago. That's all you got is a guy that you never met who doesn't use any sources or anything like that and just says, oh yeah, this happened to me. I was a persecutor and now I'm not. Uh, and not only that, but the, the Pauline writings conflict with the Acts, the way Paul is portrayed in Acts and all sorts of other stuff. So that's number three. Uh, number four, no early church debate. So the argument is the early church didn't question whether Jesus was resurrected or not. And I, I wonder why early Christians would fail to question the central tenet of their religion. Hmm, that's, that's shocking to me. But even that, what is the early church? How much do we have from the early church? How do you demarcate between what's the early church versus not? Uh, you know, they probably also failed to question whether Jesus existed, you know, uh, or fa failed to question whether Jesus was just a copy of Osiris and Romulus or, or Inanna from the descent of Inanna. So you have to define the early church. It doesn't mean a whole lot that a church that bases their entire existence and all their doctrines on certain central tenets wouldn't question those central tenets. It, it lasted for, you know, millennia of just saying, oh no, these things are true. And if you question us, then <laughs> we're going to have you murdered. Yeah, it's not particularly significant that the early church didn't question a whole bunch whether the resurrection actually happened. And obviously you can apply that to all sorts of religions. Okay, well, let's look at the early talks of, of the early religions of other religions, like Judaism, like Islam, like Zoroastrianism, or whatever else, and just determine, okay, well, they didn't question this, it must be true. Of course not. That's absolutely ridiculous. Okay, the faith of the martyrs. This is 
one of the worst arguments. But so the mar uh, the martyrs believed so much they were willing to die for it. Therefore, it must be true. See Islam. That's my response. See Islam. You need a hell of a lot more information regarding martyrs and their likelihood to die for a correct, well-supported, well-defined position rather than a demonstrably incorrect one. And you've got... We don't even know how many martyrs died or <laughs> when they died or why they died. We have barely any information re related to that, especially the earliest martyrs, especially those ones portrayed in the Gospels or other writings in the New Testament. Barely any information related to those. We have a lot more information of martyrs today from Islamic faith, so that evidence is much stronger, therefore they must be correct about their religion, right? Of course not. No. People are idiots. People do things for stupid reasons. So there's no way that 2,000 two years hence that we're going to say that, okay, well they must have been correct then. No. These are the weakest freaking arguments you could possibly imagine. This person levied the proposition that the evidence is very strong for this, based on these arguments. So we're 5 in, and it's virtually zero still. 